This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome. It's Tuesday, so we're going to talk politics. And I have questions that affect various levels of government, and they go to who is minding the store? Who is responsible? And more to the point, is anyone taking responsibility? This weekend, we were number one. That's right. Although we keep hearing that airport chaos is now a global problem, Air Canada and WestJet had the worst records, number one and number two, for delays in North America this long weekend. We've talked about the transport minister blaming passengers, and lately he's blamed the airlines. What about him? What about ministerial responsibility? If things are a mess in the parliamentary system, I thought the minister has to take responsibility, perhaps resign. No sign of that here. And I also want to get to the saga of the fired Ontario bureaucrats accused of stealing $11 million in provincial COVID-19 relief funds. So who is overseeing that? Sanjay and Shalini Madan are married. They both say Shalini, the wife, was not involved and knew nothing about it. Uh, she apparently knew nothing about the multi-million dollars worth of real estate they stashed away. And she was terminated from her $133,000 a year government job. And get this, she's suing the province for wrongful dismissal and seeking more than $5 million in damages. And, you know, there are those who estimate that actually this fraud uh, that they allegedly did could be up to $30 bucks, and it could have stretched all the way back to the McGuinty government. So what about that? Now, meanwhile, the conservative leadership race is mired in the same old debate about the, quote, soul of the conservative parties. So I would like to hear from you. What do you think about all that? The numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll free 1-866-740-4740. And now, the Recovering Politicians Panel. And I'd like to welcome Charles Souza, the former Minister of Finance for Ontario and MPP for Mississauga South, former Conservative Senator Hugh Siegel, and Howard Hampton, former leader of the Ontario NDP. Hey, guys, thanks for joining us. Hi, good afternoon. Hi. Let us begin with the conservative saga and Marjorie LeBreton, the uh, senator, uh, former senator, was the latest to write a thing saying our party has to get elected, our party has to uh, find its soul, our party has to stop squabbling. Hugh, uh, is that falling on deaf ears? No, I don't think so, actually. Um, there's an organization which she is now part of, called Centerite Conservatives, who are basically a national organization based in Calgary, 
uh, in Edmonton that wants to see the Conservative Party be a moderate, centrist party, not seduced by right-wing extremism, not seduced by uh, a kind of disregard for peace, order, and good government, and a will to overthrow duly elected governments, as some in the uh, truckers' convoy wanted to do. And I think that that is now beginning to become a pretty substantial and thoughtful reflection across all kinds of people, including those who signed up to support the various conservative candidates for the leadership. I mean, if you look at where Polyev is now, he is uh, united with Costa Rica and North Korea <laughs> in saying that cryptocurrency is the future. Uh, the currency has collapsed. Uh, it's not a currency. It's just a commodity. And had people taken his advice when he offered that advice as a way to avoid inflation, if you can imagine, anybody who did so would have lost 80% of what they had invested. So I think Marjorie is speaking for a lot of conservatives, left, right, and center, who are delighted to have those different views in the party, but know that in the end, if the party isn't a balanced, centrist organization with practical solutions to real problems, it will not be competitive at election time. Right. But uh, what we know of the numbers in this race, it looks like it's Poilievre's to lose. And, uh, you know, he's seems to have galvanized all kinds of grievances. I mean, uh, the numbers do not look like they're on the side of moderation. Well, no, but it's important not to get overwhelmed by the numbers because the size of the numbers is far less important than where the membership is. You can have 5,000 members of a riding association in Calgary. They have 100 points on the big board. You can have 150 members of a riding association in Central Nova in the Maritimes. They'll have 100 points on the big board for the final count. So the numbers of memberships, while interesting and really worthy of reflecting on, does not necessarily predict how the outcome will be in a distributed vote. Remember, when Premier Ford won the leadership uh, of the Ontario Conservative Party, his uh, second-place opponent actually had more votes in total, but his distribution across the ridings of the province was more efficient. Charles Souza, does this uh, disarray among the Conservatives basically give uh, the Liberals a blank check? I mean, Honestly, there is every indication that the government in Ottawa is real tired. You know, if they had more Hugh Siegel conservatives, it would be more of a challenge for the Liberals. We need more of that. In fact, the provincial Liberals are in, a, in, a, in the same position now, uh, except instead of attacking too far right, they're, they're attacking too far left. Everybody wants to be part of that middle center that are fiscally responsible, socially conscious, progressive, but may, enabling to afford things that matter. And the federal liberals are seen right now as being a bit more far, are more to the left, vacating the center, which is where Hugh, I think, is trying to encourage many of his colleagues in the Conservative Party to, to, to take over, just as Doug Ford did in the province. But if Pierre comes in and they cater to the extremists, you're going to be back at eating each other up yet again. Uh, um, Howard Hampton, I mean, you know, uh, People are talking about political labels, center, center left, center right, whatever. I'm talking about basic things like ministerial responsibility. Who is overseeing, you know, the the handout of millions and millions of dollars in cash? Are we at a a kind of a, a crisis in competence, basically? 
oh, I think the world is in crisis. Uh, and I, I, I know we like to focus our conversation, let's say, on Ontario and Canada. But I, I, you know, I think we need to recognize just uh, how painful the world is now. I think we also need to recognize, and I think this is especially true for the Conservative Party now, how many of their potential supporters spend more time watching what is going on in the United States uh, vis-a-vis Donald Trump uh, or his uh, his supporters. Um, I, I I'd like to say say that uh, you know I I have faith in what he was saying, but I live directly across the border from what was thought to be a very progressive state in the United States. And I watched that state elect Jesse Ventura, a retired uh, wrestler. wrestler, as the governor of the state, uh, whose only real message was he was going to chase the politicians, uh, the, the professional politicians, out of uh, the state of Minnesota. And and so the guy got elected, and I, I think what you'd find is that the state of Minnesota avoided chaos uh, in, in several sectors, just barely. I, I my concern is that's where we are today. I knocked on a lot of doors in the federal election, and I, I uh, got to know the conservative candidate who actually got elected in the riding. It's the first time elected. He was shocked by the attitudes of many of the people who were voting for him. Uh, you know, people saying, well, Donald Trump's coming back and I'm voting for you because, uh, you know, I think you're the closest thing to Donald Trump and that's where I want to be. And, and you'd be shocked by the number of people who have that attitude, who spend more time watching American media than they spend ever watching what's happening in Canada. And, and that's where much of their political education or, or political advice is coming from. Yeah, I'm not sure that's that's true in the cities, Howard, but uh, yeah, I, I hear you. Uh, by the way, I, I used think to, it's true I, everywhere. I used to live in Minnesota a long time ago, <laughs> so uh, it's, it's cold there. They have a lot of snow, even compared to us. Um, but getting back to Canada, uh, Charles Sousa, so... Uh, should anyone be stepping down like the transport minister, Omar Al-Ghabra? Yeah, this, this whole delay, you know, it's, it's, it's shocking that back in April, this thing was already developing. And it's not a peak season. And yet these things are happening. So it was evident that we were going to get into a crisis situation, not just in Canada, but of course it's around the world. And, and the minister is, I believe, trying to do his best by hiring more and and maybe, uh, you know, cutting back on some of the protocols for COVID and extending hours so people can get the job done. Not enough. And there was lack of preparation in order to, you know, to be where we are now. Not, and again, not just in, in Pearson and Montreal, all over the world. But, uh, yeah, there, there, uh, there needs to be accountability. And uh, you can't keep blaming everybody else for some of the failures that are happening. But somehow... Uh, he's not alone in this. There has to be uh, better preparations in order to prepare for the the, the the return from the pandemic. I mean, these peak demands, the requirements for people, a lot of people are just staying home. A lot of pilots can't get their licenses renewed. We can't even get our nexuses renewed. So the delays at the airport are a combination of so many things. 
Some people can't even get their passport. So yeah, a lot of people can't get their passports. Pardon me? I said a lot of people can't get their passports. You know, and, and all of this is happening at the same time, and it's frustrating to no end. So it's not just the minister's fault, right? There's a lot of people that, uh, a lot of circumstances that have, that have taken place that is creating a chain reaction here. And uh, that, I think of all the people managing their bags. I mean, a lot of recommendations. A lot of people are now saying what you should do. And I think what, what the minister is trying to say is, guys, we're in a crisis. So take precautions now to avoid finding yourself in this predicament. So it's not so much that he's blaming passengers. He's trying to, I think, encourage passengers to take different positions. Yeah, figure and, out how to empty your pockets. Oh, I get it. I know. There's, <laughs> there's, there's many things that we, we should all do, and I'm doing it. I mean, I'm cautious about making sure I've got all my documents in place, you know, downloading the airline apps and avoiding connecting flights, trying to source times where I don't go during the airport. But not all of us have that ability to do, and it's really frustrating for us to even have to consider it. And then, of course, cross-border and, and U.S. customs, the delays are, are, are crazy. I, I have no desire to fly. I really don't. Uh, but I did come back in February, and I got caught in a huge delay after a 14-hour flight at Pearson, where I'm cattled through the lineups, and I figure I'm going to catch COVID. I'm going to catch it at the airport. Yeah, I'm surrounded by people. Well, and yeah. then they make me, and I got pulled off to do a random check. It was my fourth COVID, a PCR test, within about, I don't know, two weeks. And I, guys, I've done it all. I've given you my app. I've shown you everything I've done. But yet, we have these ongoing delays and, and processes, which has exacerbated the problem. Uh Hugh, I mean, should somebody in the government step up and say, uh, this is this is my problem? I mean, should Algabra resign? Is is anyone there? I mean, it just seems to me like they're they're there, like they're entitled to be there, and and it's kind of too bad. So I I actually think that I mean I, I agree uh, with uh, Charles that there is some some uh, complexity here. Look. When I see someone on one of the TV networks saying that she's really upset, um, she's leaving in, in a week uh, for her dream trip to Southeast Asia, which she's been saving for for two years, but she doesn't think she'll get her passport renewed in time. She had two and a half years to renew her passport if she knew when she was traveling. Why would she be trying six weeks before her flight? So there's a little bit of fault on everybody's side here, not just the poor folks in the passport office who are trying to get the job done as best they can. I think one of the things that uh, a resignation on the part of Al Gabra would do, and by the way, um, as those uh, my colleagues on the panel will know, a minister can submit his resignation, and the prime minister can refuse to accept it. But at least in submitting his resignation, he's saying, I'm prepared to take the heat. And none of that has happened, and I think that would be something that would be, quite frankly, quite constructive. The other issue is, and there was an interesting piece done by the Institute for Research on Public Policy, about who is in the public service now, federally. Who are the people in the, in the passport offices? Who are the people working in Transport Canada? And the answer is, they are now mostly of uh, the millennial generation. A lot of people in their 50s and 60s retired during the pandemic because they could, by the way, on full index pension, just so we're clear, yeah. <laughs> leaving a whole bunch of folks who are, you know, younger and hardworking and determined and loyal, as far as I know, but who really don't have the experience 
to really figure out how to do all this in the same way someone who's been in the passport office for 15 years would understand instantaneously. And I think we should take a page from what Premier Legault did during the high point of the COVID. He said, we need nurses and we need doctors and we need the retired doctors and retired nurses to come back and help. And there will be an incentive if they do so. And it would really make a difference. And you know what? To their credit, to our fellow Quebecers' credit, thousands of them came back to help. And I think if the federal government said the same thing about the passport office and about the nexus, the Canadian side of the nexus piece and all the rest, I think a lot of people would come back and that would help the millennials cope with what is a circumstance with which, to be fair, they have no experience at all. That would be a substantive difference to make. Just hiring new people to work for the Canadian Air Transport Security Agency who have no experience may help, but it's not going to get enough critical mass in place to make the difference quickly. Doing the other, what Legault did in Quebec, might actually make a difference. Hmm. That's that's an interesting thought, uh, but I'd like to pick up on what you said, that if Al-Rabra resigns, it would at least send a message because the message that we're all getting here is, uh, you know, uh, grin and bear it. Um, we're fine. We're doing our best. Uh, you know, tough luck. Uh, Howard, I mean, um, again, you know, this is, uh, a, a, regardless of what's going on in the United States, should the liberal government step up and take responsibility for some of these screw-ups? Well, they should, but they're not. And I think the reason they're not is you're you're hearing it every day on the news, saying, well, yeah, this is happening here, but it's happening there. You know, It's happening in Britain with the strike. Uh, it's happening uh, in Scandinavia, where the pilots are saying we're not going to fly anymore. Uh, because uh, you know we flew short-staffed and understaffed, and and we're tired of this, and we, you either pay us more money or we're not going to fly. I, I mean, this is uh, you, you could always point to you know what is happening both in the United States. You turn on American news, how many thousands of flights were canceled uh, on this weekend, this long weekend in the United States? Uh, you turn on the news in Britain. How many flights are canceled? Uh, you turn on fewer the news than from ours. Europe, uh, you know what's happening. As long as that's going on, I don't think you're going to get, uh, you know, the political responsibility uh, or the polit- the acceptance of political responsibility for what is happening. But uh, again, this this is a, a multi prong problem. It's not just a federal government that spends its time, uh, you know, doing cameo appearances for the news. Uh, and not doing effective public administration. It is a case where all kinds of flight attendants said, I'm not going to put up with passengers who won't wear a mask or passengers who swing at me, uh, punch me in the face when I tell them they have to. It's also people who are who said, I'm not going to go uh, and board flights anymore when I have people cursing and swearing at me when I tell them they have to put on their mask. And it's pilots who flew, again, understaffed in some cases, or in other cases were laid off, saying, you know what, I'm not your servant anymore. And and you add all these things up. I, I mean, part of the problem, too, for the federal government is 
much of the, not just for the federal government, but also airlines, much of what they do is contracted out. Right. So much of the baggage handling is contracted out. And the contractor may, in fact, be where the problem lies, but they don't care. Or, uh, you know, the whole issue of, of security at the airports. Yes, you have an agency, but you have individual companies who are contracted to provide the service. And you don't know uh, how those companies have treated their employees during the whole COVID crisis. Uh, and, and so the government doesn't have any effective control over that. Well, they have, they certainly have uh, effective control over passport offices and ultimate responsibility for that. I'd like to turn to this uh, story. No, no, no debate about that. But yeah. the, the reality of what's happened over the last three years, and it doesn't matter if you look at the federal civil service, the provincial civil service, health service, police services, fire services, a lot of people said, I'm, I, I'm, I didn't sign on to deal with what I'm having to deal with now. Right. And, so and they, I'm retiring. Uh, right. Uh, that's, that's right. And they are retiring with, uh, with uh, gold-plated pensions, as Hugh well, pointed out. Um, and uh, it, for me, a lot of things don't add up about the la- labor shortage. I could understand it when people were getting served, but uh, the people who uh, apparently cannot be hired now, I mean, they've got to be making money somewhere. But Let me remember this. All the airlines, West WestJet, Air Canada, Cetera in Canada, and a whole bunch of other companies applied for and got multi-million dollar wage support grants from the federal government in the same way as individuals got serve payments to support them when they were out of work. So they would not let their people go. That's part of why that money was given, so they'd maintain their strength. So I would think one of the things the Auditor General of Canada should be doing is looking at what those large companies did with that money and what they did to keep their staff. And that would apply, by the way, to any of the service companies who were providing service to the Canadian Airline Transport Safety Association at the airports, did they take money and did they keep their staff? If, and if they didn't, why not? Because that's what the money was for. Well, I can tell you, they, they gave their executives big bonuses. <laughs> that's what they did. Well, that, that's a matter that should be discussed in public. And in some cases, the government should claw back the money and use it for things we need now. Well, but if but, if you're looking I, at Air Canada I, as the only, you know, not the only, but as the main airline, I mean, they get away with whatever. Charles, I hear you wanting to jump in there. Oh, that was Howard, but I will jump in. Yeah. Um, <laughs> there were uh, there are other issues that have taken place. Obviously, some of these individuals, you know, they seem wanted. They wanted to be fired in some cases. Like you know, no vaccines, you're gone. In some cases, you got to shave your beard or clean shaven. If not, you're gone. And there were religious issues. Then there's maintenance delays that are happening. The ripple effect is huge. But you're right. I think a lot of us were supported. Us, I mean, I'm seeing that generally. We're supported by Serb, as Hugh Siegel was suggesting. A lot of them found themselves at home, got complacent, and started to think, you know, I don't really have to go back because now I'm near retirement. I'll take advantage of the, of the system and allow myself to take, to take a rest. Because knowing that they go back during this period of transition is going to be difficult. And I know many of them, many of them who chose, I'm just not going to do it. 
I'm not going to do it because I don't want the headaches. And I don't need it financially because I'm not going to be that much better off by going back to work. Hugh and Howard have made reference to the fact that people were supported, and now there's no real incentive for them to go back, especially now, given the crisis. It's, I like the idea, though, of calling back some of that institutional memory to help. But when it comes to service and the airline work, wow, it's really, there's really not a lot of institutional memory required. It's just we need <laughs> bodies on hand, we need people at the security borders, we need people to process individuals, we need baggage holders to put bags in the respective places. And they're not available to them. And Omar and the ministers and all others can, can try to do what they can to rehire people. But if they're not willing to come back to work, it's going to be long delay still. Okay, well, they're saying till the fall. We only have a few minutes left. I want to touch on this incredible story out of Queen's Park. It's not a new story. Uh, Charles, about this alleged fraud, millions of dollars, and it now turns out that it could go back to... Uh, it could go back to Dalton McGilty, McGinty's time. It's McGilty, too... come on, Libby. <laughs> that was a slip of the tongue. That was, honestly, that was a slip of the tongue. I know, I know. Um, uh, this is, listen, like, this has never happened before. Really? I mean, th- there are people in the system that are fraudulent, that are criminals. I'm not accusing, I'm not suggesting because he hasn't been a, he hasn't been charged or he hasn't been counted guilty, but you know, kickbacks and secret commissions and, and people, you know, uh, getting uh, little brand brown envelopes and so forth. I guess it happens, but this is not little. There's millions of dollars that have gone through. This man has amassed quite a bit of wealth offshore. He's got the Panama registrations. I mean, obviously, yeah. there's some stuff in play that this guy was involved with, and he's been caught. And now they're going to have to resolve it and, and correct it. But, you know, human nature over the ages in government and people that have privilege and certain degree of power or the power to make decisions or access to information, sometimes abuse it. And that's that's what I'm seeing here. It's 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 you know, it's gotta be corrected. I mean one of the critical things that all the auditors general were supposed to do, uh, and did do for many, many years was examine probity. Is anybody stealing? And that was a big part of their job in all of the provinces and federally. When um, the federal government decided and the provinces decided that the Audit Act would be changed so that one of their primary focuses would be value for money, I think a lot of auditors general across the the country, provincial and federal, spent a lot of effort on that, and we're not spending as much effort on this issue of probity. And in the end, it's either the internal auditor of a department or the external auditor who sees something that doesn't add up and decide someone is up to something, and perhaps we have to call the police. And if they're not doing the work on probity, which is fundamental, then bad actors, whoever they may be, and I assume that there's a presumption of innocence here until we hear otherwise, will use the system if they can, which is why that probity function for auditors general is so darned important. So we've got to put that back again. You know, it seems that a lot of what went under the wayside here is not a question of your politics, your left, your right, whatever. It's just a matter of taking care of business. Hmm. Yeah. Well, and, and, you know, I say this with respect to all of the people on this call who have been elected, and I have not, and who have served in senior, senior ministerial positions, and I have not. But one of the real challenges is the difference between announcing a policy 
and then seeing to its effective and practical implementation on the ground. And I would say that the federal government has some excellent and compelling policies, but I think they're having a core problem on timely and efficient delivery. And that says something about their relationship with their own public service, which is what they should be looking at. Okay. On that note, I'm going to wrap things up. We're out of time for this segment. Thank you so much, Charles Souza, Hugh Siegel, and Howard Hampton. We'll talk again soon. Thank you, Right. We are going to take a break. And when we come back, uh, there is this whole kerfuffle over the sick security guards who lost their jobs or were demoted for not being clean shaven in situations where they needed to wear an N95 respirator mask. We'll get into that when we come back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Is it an issue of health and safety or discrimination? And who is responsible for fixing it? More than 106 have lost their jobs as security guards for the City of Toronto over a clean-shaven policy that is being required for staff so they can wear N95 masks in certain settings. Now, they work for a company the city contracts out to. The city says it's up to the company to accommodate them and even the way the mayor waited in. I hope the people in the Sikh community in particular, but all other faiths as well. This is a city where each of these things, you know, doesn't just affect any one faith community. It affects all faith communities because they think, well, what could happen to me with regard to something that might be part of my religious belief set? And uh, I think that they have to understand every single day of every week that this is a city that is respectful and that does accommodate and that uh, carries out its own policies uh, with regard to its own staff, but also those who contract with us uh, to do things for us. Okay. Well, right now, let us go to Brad Ross, Toronto's Chief Communications Officer. Hi, Brad. Hello, hello, Libby. How are you? Fine, thanks. Uh, Brad, the, one of the things that uh, I'm very curious about is why now? We went through the worst of the pandemic and this wasn't an issue. Why did it come up now? Yeah, so at the end of June, uh, this past June, June 22nd, in fact, um, a, uh, a public health directive um, based on guidelines and occupational health and safety said that in congregate settings like shelters and in particular where there is an outbreak or a suspected case of COVID, that those staff, uh, including contractors who may come into close contact with a, with an individual uh, who has COVID should wear a um, N95 respirator. To protect them um, and to and to protect those around them, so that uh, that was the public health directive. And an N95 respirator, uh, as as you may know, and and many of your listeners, I'm sure, do, needs to be what we call fit tested. That that is, it has to it has to create a a seal around the face, uh, the nose and chin and the cheeks, uh, and and facial hair. Would prevent that seal from from being effective, uh, effectively protecting the individual. 
But again, uh, it seems very strange to me that this directive came out. Was it? Did it just come out in June, or was it just enforced in it, June? It, it's been it, it, it like all policies and 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 and, uh, and guidelines. They're continually assessed and uh, and reassessed. Um, and while the mask uh, general masking mandate, as we know, was lifted for things like public transit. Um, they still remain um, for certain congregate settings like shelters uh, where, you know, some of our, our most vulnerable residents um, reside. So it is, a, um, uh, it is a guideline and it is something that we continually uh, are looking at and, and updating uh, as necessary. So uh, what is the nature of accommodation? I mean, the World Sick Organization says it's discrimination. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of these some of these men were let go. Some were offered alternate employment, but it paid less. Right. So unacceptable on, on all forms. Um, accommodation means accommodation. That is that you must be accommodated uh, with another uh, role um, without being demoted, without having a pay docked, without being uh, having your employment terminated. Uh, we have an obligation as a city to accommodate our employees and our contractors must follow our policy as well. It's also human rights legislation. If uh, you have a religious grounds, then you are entitled to a Accommodation. We cannot discriminate based on uh, religion, uh, as we all know, and it is unacceptable that that, that occurred. Accommodation uh, in 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 this case would be, uh, you know, it's another location, another facility in the city. For example, uh, we have a lot of uh, a lot of work for contract security guards uh, at the city of Toronto, uh, and so our expectation is that that those employees would have been accommodated. And we will be communicating and have communicated in the strongest terms possible with these contractors um, that these employees um, must be reinstated and cannot be discriminated against because they have beards uh, for religious reasons. Right. But according to their pay scale, uh, you know, you're talking about a a shelter here. Uh, They get higher pay for working in a riskier situation like a shelter than they might get somewhere else. So you're saying that the it's the company that has to make the dollars and cents of that work. Yes, the company has the obligation to accommodate their employees um, based on on the city's policy. So if you're a contractor doing work with the city of Toronto, um, you're obligated to to have policies in place to protect your employees, to ensure that there is uh, human rights uh, pol- that there are human rights policies in place, uh, that there is anti-harassment and discrimination policies in place, uh, just as the city has, uh, and that you um, uh, and, and that you accommodate your employees accordingly and appropriately. So I'm not, I, you know, can't get into the nuts and bolts of what that might look like. But what I can tell you is that the city have a number of, uh, of, of roles for contract security guards. And so, um, you know, being able to accommodate uh, a security guard uh, should not be an issue uh, for those working at the city, for, for those working for the city. Uh, the World Sick Organization, who we will be speaking to, by the way, uh, they say you're passing the buck. Is that fair? Well, um, 
Sure. I mean, uh, look, I'm, this isn't about what we're focused on is getting this right and getting this fixed uh, immediately. Um, we, you know, having a, a N95 respirator fit testing requirement is not unique to the city of Toronto. This is a occupational health and safety guidelines for many, um, uh, many roles and many jobs uh, that, that are outside of the city. Um, so N95 respirators and, and being fit tested is not unique to the city. Um, but the, 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 the issue is that, that the contractors that the city has hired, um, have, have failed to accommodate their employers appropriately. And so, you know, the city needs to bear some responsibility for, for, for that miscommunication with, with those contractors. And that's what we're, we're fixing now. Um, this is, uh, absolutely not, uh, you know, these individual security guards, um, and, and we have not had a single complaint from an individual. Uh, we've received this complaint from the World Sick Organization of Canada, and uh, we are addressing it now. And I, I appreciate that, um, in, in their view, we have not uh, been, been um, responsive enough to this point and accept that entirely, and we are fixing that right now. Um, is it true that if these uh, contracting companies don't fix it, you'll fire them? So we have many remedies at, uh, at our disposal when, when there is a contract and that contract is, uh, not being followed. Uh, we have, uh, up, we have remedies up to including the termination of a contract. Um, not suggesting that that's what's going to happen in this particular case. Uh, but that is uh, certainly, you know, a remedy as, as it is for, for any contract that is uh, not being adhered to um, by, by the person who, uh, you know, is writing the checks, that is the City of Toronto. Uh, we could absolutely terminate uh, any contract at any time for, for, for an organization or a company not living up to the terms of that contract. Well, it's a, a little ironic that would uh, hurt those laid off security guards yeah, just our, as much. Yeah, our our um, our objective here is to is to have these uh, these individuals who uh, may have had their employment terminated or uh, have had some uh, sort of uh, you know the pay docked or, or what have you to have that uh, uh, rectified uh, as soon as possible. And we will be writing to uh, those contractors and, and having conversations with them uh, as we have in the last couple of days to to make it crystal clear what our expectations are as a city. Uh, the other thing is the World Sick Organization has said, hey, you know, these guys wore uh, surgical medical masks and it was fine until now. So mm -hmm. uh, is there going to be any accommodation on, on that front where they might be allowed to wear less, uh, you know, less stringent masks? We are looking right now, uh, Libby, at, uh, at, at, at an alternative solution uh, to accommodate um, uh, these uh, the, these men who uh, were uh, working in or working in our shelter system. So um, we're, we're working through that as, as we speak. So um, I'm hopeful that we'll be able to say something more later uh, about uh, accommodation around um, uh, alter an alternative, for example, to an N95 that will uh, protect them uh, and protect those around them. Okay. Brad Ross, Toronto's Chief Communications Officer, thanks for joining us. Libby, thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. We're going to take another break. When we come back, we're going to hear the other side of this, uh, also about how this came to the fore and became something uh, a rather large issue when we return. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. 
Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. We are having a little bit of a technical issue. Uh, we are uh, waiting to get on a good phone line with Balpreet Singh, who is the legal counsel and spokesperson for the World Sick Organization. But I would like to throw it open to you and see what you think, because this organization, the World Sick Organization of Canada, has called the policy absurd, the policy that is requiring these security guards to wear N95 masks, and it says that they are being punished for their faith. Now, do you agree? Are they being punished for their faith, or is this uh, is this a, a health and safety issue? Now, one of the things that I brought up with Brad Ross was that it seems a little late in the game to bring this up, but as he said, protocols are being uh, are being reassessed all the time. And one of the things that I noticed is uh, we have a new chair of the Board of Health, and it is the former city councillor who is now the interim city councillor in Spadina, North York, Joe Mehevic. I actually know Joe pretty well. He used to be the city councillor for my area, and we've talked to him many, many times on this show and on other shows. So I'm wondering if it has something to do with that, that Joe is being stringent. And, you know, Brad Ross was a little bit cagey. He was saying, uh, maybe they will relax the rule in order to accommodate these security guards. But is that the right thing to do? Because one of the things they're saying is, hey, you know, surgical masks were fine all the time, so why now? And I guess why now is that we seem to be at the beginning of a summer wave of COVID. So I would like to hear from you. The numbers to call, 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And we were talking about these 100 or so sick security guards who are either laid off or demoted, actually making less money when they were offered alternate employment because there are now some settings where they are required to wear an N95 respirator mask. And that would be in emergency shelters like the one we have right across the street here in Liberty Village. So again, what do you think? Is this discrimination and how should they be accommodated? Should they be sent to a different job with the same amount of pay or should the rules be changed for them? And, you know, we kept saying all morning, we thought that this issue was solved way, way back in the day, you know, with the RCMP and the turban ruling. But uh, is this the same as that or is this different? Again, the numbers 416 360 toll free 1-866-744-740. And now I'd like to bring in Balpreet Singh, the legal counsel and spokesperson of the World Sick Organization of Canada. Hello, and thanks for joining us. 
Thank you for having me. So you're saying that these security guards are being uh, discriminated against for their faith. Uh, isn't this just a health and safety issue? Well, the fact is that they've served in their positions for two years without uh, without issue. Uh, so at the height of the pandemic, when there were no vaccines, when people were dying, uh, uh, they served in this position when no one else wanted to do the job. Uh, and now... Uh, things are changing. We know that mass mandates are being lifted and visitors to these sites are not masking. Uh, and uh, to ask them to clean shave or leave their job, it was uh, unacceptable. Uh, so we have had developments since the story broke yesterday. The city has agreed to a recommendation. There is a method called an undermasking technique where you cover the beard with a latex cover or cloth cover that forms an effective seal. And uh, that's going to be the method moving forward. So this is something we suggested a month ago, and uh, I'm glad that the, the city has accepted that recommendation. Oh, okay. So they will be uh, able to cover their beards with latex and then what, put a surgical mask on top? Yeah, that's the that's the method. So you use a, either a cloth cover or a latex cover to cover the beard, and the mask seals effectively with the cover. Uh huh. And has this been tested? Is it as effective as an N95? Yeah, it's been tested in medical science journals uh, out of the UK, and that's where the method was originally, uh, I guess, introduced. So it, it forms an effective seal comparable to uh, a seal with the skin. And uh, who came up with it? This is interesting. It was actually six doctors uh, who were serving uh, in hospitals in the UK. So uh, this N95 issue is not new to the to the community. So uh, they found a solution, and the solution was tested in medical science journals. And uh, the city has informed me today that uh, they have approved it for use, and that's how they will be moving forward. Uh huh. And it's up to the, this whole issue of, is it the city that's responsible for an accommodation? Is it the contractors? What's your view of that? Well, legally, it's both. So the rule is set by the city and it's enforced by the contractor. So both of them are legally, according to human rights law, on the hook for accommodating. So, uh, the contractors, uh, really didn't do a very good job of it in that uh, they simply said, we'll put you in other positions, and mostly they just said, we'll lay you off. Uh, so that wasn't acceptable, but I'm glad that the city has stepped in, and uh, better late than never, they have uh, provided, hopefully, a, a solution that will uh, meet the needs of all these affected uh, security cards. And you say that you suggested this a month ago? So I had written to Mayor Tory and all of City Council on June the 7th, and uh, this was one of the recommendations I had included in my in my letter. And uh, after waiting, I guess, almost a month, I, I had heard back on a timeline when I'd be hearing back or when they'd be reaching a decision. So uh, yesterday when it broke in the media, uh, I guess we've gotten a solution pretty quickly. Well, it's interesting because uh, what it sounded like to me was that this was really the first time, certainly the mayor and... Uh, Brad Ross is who we spoke to, got wind of this. So I had sent it to the mayor's office. The mayor's office acknowledged twice that they had received it. And the third time I got an email from corporate uh, real estate saying that they were looking into it. Uh, but once again, every time I asked for a timeline or, or you know, a substantive answer to the letter, I, I didn't get anything. So uh, the wheels turn slowly, I guess, and you have to have uh, a bump from media attention. Is that the bottom line? 
Well, something similar happened uh, with the RCMP. So in March 2020, all sick officers were also taken off frontline duty and put on death duty because of their beards and the N95 issue. Uh, every other police force figured it out really quickly and, uh, you know, put the officers back on duty, but not the RCMP. The RCMP took six months and we worked behind the scenes working with government, the, the, the RCMP itself. And it only got solved when the media broke the story in September. So that was solved in a couple of days as well. So it's it's a, a bitter lesson, I guess, for decision makers that if you take too long, then, you know, it, the media will push you to take a decision much faster. Good, good, good for us. In that case, uh, I'm assuming that was before uh, this this method was tested. So how was that resolved? This method has been around for quite some time. Uh, so... It's been available, so it hasn't been passed, uh, I guess, through all levels of government, uh, but it is a method that's been tested and it's effective. We will be working with the province of Ontario to make sure that it gets uh, passed on uh, on a provincial level, but uh, I'm glad that the, Toronto, the city of Toronto has uh, moved forward with it. Uh, this is a completely unrelated question, but I remember there were issues with uh, sick turban-wearing men and helmets. Uh, so uh, has that been accommodated as well? So BC actually has uh, come up with a, uh, an interesting solution. Um, so instead of having blanket hard hat requirements, uh, they found a solution that works for all workers, makes it safer for all workers, and accommodates sick workers. So instead of allowing blanket hard hat requirements, what they're doing is they're saying do a risk analysis, and if there's any way to eliminate or minimize the risk, do that first. And if you can't do that, then you can introduce a hard hat. So just to explain, it's better that you get rid of the wrench overhead uh, before it hits someone on the head instead of saying, well, the wrench is going to fall, so just wear a hard hat and try and minimize the in- in- injury. So getting rid of the risk or putting some sort of an engineering control to make sure that you reduce the risk, that's preferable for all workers and it also works for sick workers so uh you reduce the amount of uh situations what about bike helmets well biking like motorbike motorbikes you mean Uh, or even bicycles bicycles i mean there's no it's a mixed bag so we wear turbans uh we choose to wear a hard hat or not choose to wear a hard hat and that's similar to uh, a lot of other bikers i mean i see around me people making that choice every day. So I don't think that's an issue. Motorcycles, on the other hand, is inherently dangerous. I mean, anyone who uses a motorcycle is accepting a very high level of risk. So we let people make that choice, uh, you know, whether they want to wear, uh, whether they want to go motorbiking or not. And if someone wants to not wear a hard hat uh, because of their faith, then I'm okay with letting them make that decision. I know uh, you know, some people say that's foolish, and maybe I agree with them, maybe I don't, but uh, that's personal choice, and uh, they can make that choice. Okay, yeah, uh, we're out of time. Thanks, and uh, congratulations on getting a ruling that seems to satisfy all sides. Appreciate your time. Thank you. Bye-bye. And that is all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.